Welcome to the Sister C Podcast, your monthly dose of sisterhood and mental health advice coming to you on the 15th of every month. My name is Joelle, and I'm a licensed therapist who is committed to fighting the stigma of mental illness. Each month, I will talk to one of my favorite sisters who has lived experience or expert insight about today's most important mental health issues. We are about to break down today's topic and provide you with some candid and practical mental health advice. Is this bitch recording? I think it is. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Sister C podcast. Today, we're talking about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is the Free Britney movement and how Britney's story and basically this conservatorship that she has been in for the last 13 years um, basically exemplifies everything about narcissistic abuse. Maybe it doesn't exemplify everything about narcissistic abuse, but it is an example of somebody who has endured severe narcissistic abuse. And there's actually, you know, a number of signs of narcissistic abuse that we will be talking about um, in this episode. And we will be talking about how Britney's story and what she has gone through, and specifically with a focus on her father and how her father has basically controlled her life and kind of been the narcissist in her life. And we're going to talk about the kind of signs of narcissistic abuse that were exhibited in front of us all of these years. And I guess especially now that Britney has spoken up, we can speak to these signs even more. And so this episode is not just about Britney, but it's also about the signs of narcissistic abuse that Britney has taught us, that her story has taught us. And then, of course, I like to always give some practical advice in this podcast. And so at the end of this episode, we will also talk about uh, ways to cope with narcissistic abuse, um, which Brittany actually has demonstrated as well. She has coped with this in a very skillful way. And so she's kind of exemplified some of the ways that we could cope with narcissistic abuse as well. And But we'll talk a little bit more generally about that at the end of this discussion. The day that we're recording this episode is November 11th. And Brittany has a court date tomorrow, which may be her last court date before she is free of this 13, 14-year conservatorship that she has been under. And so anybody who knows me knows that I am absolutely obsessed with Britney Spears. Not even obsessed. I just love her and feel connected to her. And anyone who's been following along on my social media will see that I have been very invested in what's been going on in the Free Britney case. Today's guest is the only person that I know who basically loves Britney as much as I do. I know there are people out there who love Britney as much as I do, but personally, this is the only person (laughs) who loves Britney as much as I do. And he's also my best friend who I met when I was six years old, and we have been friends ever since. Without further ado, my friend Lucas Ortiz. Lucas Ortiz is not only a friend of mine and not only has personal experience with this topic, but he also is a a health professional who recently graduated as a nurse. Take it away, Luca. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much. Um, Yes, I think, I mean, were we in diapers? No. Um, We were in, boy, I was sitting on your face. That's what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Literally my first memory of you being six years old is you (laughs) sitting on my face. That's really my first memory of you. (laughs) 
<laughs> we should have known we were <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but all jokes aside, thank you so much. I am so excited to be here today with you virtually. I am um, so glad to have you. And yes, I'm a recent grad from the local community college here in New Brunswick. And I am licensed as a practical nurse. And I love Britney Spears mm. so much. And just like you said, uh, not really an obsession, just genuine care for someone that mm. has impacted our lives beyond just, you know, a popular singer. You know, her trials and tribulations and her ups and downs have really kind of molded us a little bit. And I think that's really mm-hmm. important to highlight. Yeah, it's almost like a investment in Britney Spears, the person, not just Britney Spears, the singer, Britney Spears, the product. And I think, you know, I've always basically been interested in mental health and aware of mental health. I mean, I always loved Britney Spears every time that I saw her come up on the TV. But essentially, I lived in a very sheltered home. I was very sheltered growing up. And the Much Music channel where, you know, kind of, I guess my only exposure to um, Britney at that time was blocked at my house. And you were the first person to really, uh, really, where I could go and explore my love for Britney Spears because you just lived two doors away from me, basically two doors down. And I would come over and we would watch Britney videos in your basement. And, you know, that's kind of when I truly fell in love with Britney. And really, it wasn't like the earliest Britney era that I fell in love with, but I fell in love with Britney in 2007 during her Gimme More era, basically when, you know, when this whole thing started, when, you know, she shaved her head and I guess that warranted you know, her to lose all of her rights for 13 years. But basically, <laughs> that's when I started to love her. When, when the public started to turn on her is when I started to love her. And simultaneously, I was also coming out of the closet. 2007 was basically the year that I came out as gay. I was 15 years old, maybe 16 years old. Basically, was going through a lot and having my own struggles and really connected with Britney almost because of the struggles that she was going through at the same time. And I was able to see that really this person is just overwhelmed with the attention and the harassment. And it's not so much that she had something wrong with her as it is a normal response to what she was going through. And I've always seen it like that since day one. Why don't you tell me a little bit about, since you're kind of the person who was my gateway to Britney, why don't you tell me how you fell in love with Britney? For sure. You know, it really goes back all the way to 1998 in September when that hit dropped. And, <laughs> you know, you just hear, <laughs> like, you know, um, bow, bow. you know, it was just to hit me maybe one more time. And you're like, what? Like, who is this? You know, and I'm, and slowly but surely you just, continue to hear that song again and again and again. And then, you know, 1999 comes, the song reaches number one, the album comes out, it's number one, and bam, like here you have a superstar. So really, of course, that was everyone's introduction to Britney. You know, I was six years old, I think, um, 1999, yeah, six years old, when Baby One More Time came out. So, you know, I always remember hearing the songs um, when I would go to swimming class when I was young and she really impacted me um, with her performances, you know, more and more she became provocative and 
people were talking about her, you know, what is she doing? And then that 2000 BMA performance where she ripped off her clothes to reveal a sparkling flesh colored bodysuit. <laughs> I mean, she's 18 and literally everyone thought she was butt naked um, until you can obviously see she's wearing clothes. And so just performance to performance and to kind of bring it back, I found myself really being taken over <laughs> as a becoming a fan and a stan with her third studio album, Britney, and the release of Slave for You. She ain't no slave, but... <laughs> as um, she told us in her testimony on June 23rd, she is not here to be anybody's slave. No, ma'am. But really, it was that 2001, that third Britney album, where her dancing just became so... You know, she was on fire, and she did the Slave for You performance, and the year before, you know, she did the sparkling dance suit, and, and being you know, a little Spanish. She really, you know, taught me how to dance. And I guess from her Slave for You performance onward is when I really began to follow her and was like, what is she doing now? So I guess obviously I was six years old. When you're six, seven, eight, I was like loving her as a fan. And then from Slave for You onward is when I started to really have the consideration for her as the person. Because I started to wonder, even as an eight, nine-year-old child, I was like, wow, like the sweet teeny bopper is now all of a sudden taking off all her clothes and dancing really provocatively. But yes, she's still so sweet. I guess I really related to that. I really related to having this innocence. I mean, as a nine-year-old child, uh, I come from a history of abuse, um, just to kind of get that out there. Mm-hmm. So as a child, I felt like I was losing my innocence because of the abusive environment around me. And to look at Brittany you know, she was an idol for me. Um, she represented strength and female empowerment. And as a young gay boy, that was really important to me. And I really needed role models because I felt like the people around me weren't doing that for me. And so mm. from then onward, I started to find myself wondering, you know, how is she as a person? You know, who is this girl? And that was basically uh, the, begin- the beginning. Yes, absolutely. I relate to that as well. I feel like Brittany has absolutely been a source of light for me, a beacon of light for me. And she's been someone who I've looked up to as <laughs> basically, like you said, someone as a, somebody who embodies female empowerment and somebody who just feels so powerful, basically by listening to a Brittany song or just by watching a Brittany performance, I also feel powerful. And really, I just feel like a soul connection with her. Now that she will be free as of tomorrow, it sounds like she very likely will be free of this conservatorship officially. Whatever happens tomorrow, I'm going to ball my eyes out. And the Free Britney movement, you guys rock. Honestly, my voice was muted and threatened for so long. And um, I wasn't able to speak up or say anything. And um, because of you guys and the awareness of kind of knowing what was going on, and delivering that news to the public for so long. You gave it awareness um, to all of them. And um, because of you, I honestly think you guys saved my life. (laughs) Oh my goodness, yeah. If she becomes free, I'm going to cry. (laughs) Yeah. 
Anybody who's been following along with the Britney saga would know that um, there's been some documentaries that have been released, two of which come from the New York Times. They're called Framing Britney Spears and Controlling Britney Spears. And oh my God, the first five minutes of the last documentary, Controlling Britney Spears, I broke down because it starts with basically everybody outside the courthouse listening in for whatever reason we could hear, you know, this testimony that she gave on June 23rd. Everyone's just sitting there like rooting for this woman, rooting for this person that we know who has been trapped, who has been taken advantage of. And I believe she starts her testimony by saying, she starts her testimony by responding to you know, one of her dad's lawyers who asked to have a closed hearing, keep everything hush-hush as they always have. And she just stood up for herself and she said, actually, you've done a really good job, press, and everybody has done a really good job of exploiting my life for the last so long. And so I think that we should keep it open and you should hear what I have to say. And I'm, I'm like getting shivers just talking about it right now. Just like the strength, like the confidence to stand up to the system that has been oppressing you and to all of your abusers and to fight for your life, to fight for your freedom. She put everything on the line that day to fight for her freedom. And against all odds, it looks like she will be officially free tomorrow. I think so. Yeah. So because this is a mental health podcast, you know, we're not just going to be talking about Britney and our love for Britney. Let me ask you, Lucas, what is your relationship with the term narcissism? For sure. I remember learning about narcissism, you know, back in the day when you were finishing your university degree in your psych major. And um, we had, I believe I was 18 and you were 2021. Oh yeah, it was your 21st birthday, I think, is when we reconnected like the next day. (laughs) <laughs> yes, we did. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I became really intrigued and really enthralled with psychology because of your passion for it. And you, as you were studying and learning things, you were, I would ask you questions and you would let me know. And we also had a lot of fun just like me asking questions. Oh, what does this mean? Or what is that? And also I find myself really using a lot of what you were learning for my own healing and growth Mm -hmm. Um, because again coming from a home of abuse just (laughs) when i say a history of abuse or a home of abuse what i mean is growing up you know i didn't have the parents that tell you they love you every day and that they're proud of you and i didn't have that support where when you're a small child and you make a mistake that your you know your parents tell you what's right and what's wrong and how to move forward. And I have forgiven my parents. Um, they, come, they also come from a home of abuse. So they're just teaching me what they learned. So coming from a, um, a home where as a child, you're invalidated. You're told you're wrong, that everything that you're doing is wrong. Why, why aren't you doing better? Why aren't you good enough? Literally, those are the words that would come out of my parents' mouths as I'm a six-year-old child. Mm -hmm. So back to when I was 18 and you were 20 and you were finishing your psych major, I was just so intrigued with all the knowledge that you were learning. And I felt like I was going a little insane. You know, I wasn't given the tools to use inner strength and I didn't have the tools to make decisions for myself 
my family is very controlling or was very controlling. So every aspect of my life was controlled. You know, my parents were telling me every step of the way, what to do, what to say, how to look, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm. Up until I was 18 and I was like, all right, this is enough. So my connection to narcissism, I guess my knowledge of it comes from you and those times. Mm-hmm. But I guess now that we're talking about it, you know, I will just put out there that, you know, my mother and my father are very narcissistic. <laughs> um, and <laughs> um, I love you, mom and dad. You guys have me a lot. <laughs> we've, all come, we've all come a long way. You know? yeah. um, there's lots of discussions and conversations that I've had with my parents about their behavior. Back in the day, in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, my, my parents were very self-centered, very narcissistic. If I did something wrong, they would get upset because I would make them look bad. Mm-hmm. Things like that, those kinds of things, right? They were always worried about what people would say, what people would think about them. And I was just this object to them as mm-hmm. a child. I would even, you know, go as far as to say, you know, I remember a very vivid memory when I was like eight years old and I remember I was I'm I'm a short guy. I'm five five. Mm-hmm. I'm literally one inch taller than Brittany. <laughs> um so like I remember so as a small as an eight year old, I was literally like teeny teeny tiny, like very small. Mm-hmm. I remember looking up at my mom and just reaching out and being like, I love you. And I remember her looking down at me, laughed in my face and walked away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So kind of my connection to narcissism. So you have a personal connection to narcissism based on the narcissistic abuse that you've endured. And then, of course, you and I, yes, we have always talked and always been fascinated with psychology ever since I started studying psychology, basically. Specifically, you and I have had an interest in personality disorders, and in particular, the narcissistic personality disorders. The the fact is, there's actually an entire cluster of disorders that are all related to narcissism and all basically have narcissism at their core. And so that does include narcissistic personality disorder, but it also includes borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. So we have always had a fascination with the spectrum of disorders that are all related. And basically for those psychology nerds out there, these are called the cluster B disorders. You and I have been interested in them basically since I started learning about them, like you said. And we basically would talk about you know, how these concepts that I was learning about were relating to our lived experience. I guess I could say too, on a personal note, that let's just say that my family has been impacted by narcissism. The entire spectrum of narcissism is represented (laughs) within my family background as well. In particular, I think there's been a lot of um, trauma and abuse that has been afflicted by some uh, highly narcissistic, even sociopathic individuals within my family structure. In some cases, I don't even feel like I've experienced it directly, but I've almost learned the patterns from, you know, my mother, for instance, who um, has endured abuse from narcissistic and psychopathic people. When we talk about responses to toxic behavior and responses to narcissistic abuse, it's common for people to um, express the trait of codependency. I kind of identify, and I identified this in my last episode where I basically mentioned 
mentioned that I do identify with having traits of codependency, which I view as being um, almost an impact of the narcissistic um, abuse and other toxic behaviors that basically we've been exposed to within my family. And some, sometimes I've been exposed to it directly with my father. I think my father absolutely is on the spectrum of narcissism. And I think I wouldn't even be surprised if he was more sociopathic <laughs> to be, to, you know, kind of progressing up the spectrum from narcissism to antisocial. And um, I have always been just fascinated with the topic, even before I realized how relevant it was to me, to be honest. This is the perfect podcast for us. I'm so glad we're doing this together. And I think it's going to be um, fun to explore. Fun. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to basically bring these signs of narcissistic abuse to light through Britney's story, which we are just so familiar with. The similarities within our own families and the narcissism that is pervasive in our families, I think probably is what also drew a connection to us. And we were able to relate to each other based on our shared experience with narcissism mm -hmm. um, and narcissistic traits, you know, just to kind of um, put that out, put this out there, you know, I don't think my, either one of my parents is the narcissist, um, <laughs> but yes. because they do have empathy, <laughs> they mm. do have, even if it might be, or may have been a shallow level of empathy, there's still some empathy within them. Are they subclinical? Hell yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So while you and I have been basically exposed to high levels of narcissism, we also kind of recognize the fact that narcissism is just a personality trait. It's a characteristic. Um, it's kind of a characteristic that everybody possesses to some degree. And there's actually such thing as having too little narcissism as well as having too much narcissism. It's simply a characteristic that has been evolutionarily advantageous for us to have, for us to be able to look out for our own needs and to survive and to thrive. And basically, you know, lots of people out there have uh, some narcissistic traits. It's not really a bad thing until you start to kind of pile on those traits, until you, you're looking at about, you know, three or four or five traits of narcissism. And it's actually once you get to that five, basically, that you are considered to be a clinical narcissist. Even people who are clinically narcissistic, there's a spectrum within that. <laughs> so you can have people who have, you know, there's, I think, nine possible traits of narcissism. And overall, I would just describe these traits as a mental health condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance. And this kind of comes with like you had mentioned, a lack of empathy. So it's pretty easy to like look up any kind of video about narcissism and kind of figure out what the diagnostic criteria and things like that are. But so we're not really going to focus on that in this discussion. I do think that one thing that's important to point out is the fact that empathy seems to be involved. And what might make the difference between a clinical narcissist that has five or more traits out of nine possible traits is the fact that we tend to see lower levels of empathy. And some people would say that, you know, to be a clinical narcissist or to be, you know, a full-blown narcissist, I suppose, would mean that a person lacks capacity for empathy. We talked about 
how we're going to ex be exploring the signs of narcissistic abuse. Basically, these are signs of manipulation. The reason, I guess, why a narcissist might be able to manipulate people in these ways is because they do lack empathy and they don't care or really have insight into how people are feeling. Or I guess they do have enough insight to be able to manipulate them, but, <laughs> but truly don't like have emotional empathy. And so it kind of allows them to be able to view people as objects. That's kind of what's happened in the case of Brittany. And it's kind of why we see these people being so manipulative. That's exactly it. And so without further ado, let's get started on these signs of narcissistic abuse. Let's get into it. So, of course, it's not possible for me to diagnose someone that I've never met. And so we're not giving any official diagnoses or anything like that in this episode. But, um, you know, I was speaking about how narcissism is a personality trait and it's really kind of people at the very extreme end of the spectrum, you know, of people who have this trait where it becomes very problematic, essentially. And there's a point where someone might be considered a clinical narcissist. I would say, like my guess, my opinion is that Jamie Spears absolutely fits the bill of a clinical narcissist. And he basically took the opportunity to, you know, when his daughter was down and out, um, you know, he of course took on this role of a concerned father or he had the facade of a concerned father, but essentially he um, swooped in and took advantage of a situation and so that he could basically profit off of his daughter. And um, so he could control his daughter. He even sometimes has um, been known to say that he is Britney Spears whenever he gets into arguments with people or, um, you know, there's something that he's actually said, which I think speaks to the fact that he views his daughter and probably other people as really just um, beneath him as, as an object. He, he truly thinks that he is responsible or that he is um, the mastermind behind Britney Spears. And, and he, I guess he uses that to justify his behavior and to justify the fact that he has basically stolen 13 years of her life and millions and millions of her dollars. Million. We don't even know. So the first sign that we'll be discussing is gaslighting. This is a term that is thrown around quite a lot, but basically what it means is that when somebody is gaslighting you, they are intentionally trying to make you question your sanity, your reality, or your memories. Why don't I start out by asking you, Luca, what do you think within Britney's story relates to this concept of gaslighting? So I do want to pull from an article that I found from the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They did a wonderful piece about how Britney's conservatorship reveals a lot of tactics of abuse. Mm -hmm. um, the author is not named on this piece. You know, Britney's been gaslighted pretty much almost her entire career. I think the media and mainstream media is literally a machine of gaslighting. Mm. So when they took a hold of her persona and her brand and decided to do whatever they wanted with it, um, probably right around the time that she and Justin Timberlake um, broke up is when the media machine really started to gaslight society about who she is. And everything that happened there, um, which is revealed in the Britney Britney Spears documentary. Mm -hmm. But in this article, uh, Britney quotes, Britney was presented in the public eye as someone who was mentally unstable and someone who was unable to look after herself. 
from the Rolling Stones cover feature of then 17-year-old Spears on a bed in an unbuttoned shirt, fully exposing a bra and underwear, to the still-present memes and jokes when Spears shaved her head. Spears has been gaslit by not only her father, but also by the media coverage that she's received. So since the very beginning, again, the media is pointing out since she literally the beginning, so even before Justin Timberlake, mm-hmm. that, oh, who's this 17-year-old girl on this cover of the magazine dressed like that? She must not be well. Who are her parents? Why is she doing this? Like, what's wrong with her? You know, I guess it was back in the 90s, but we're, obviously times have changed. You know, now we're looking at female empowerment and owning and loving your own body. And she was ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Bang on. I think that she has been gaslit for much, much longer than we even than we even know. But I think the most obvious example of gaslighting for Britney is basically this conservatorship that she's in. So conservatorship, really quickly, is basically a legal guardianship that is imposed on somebody when they have demonstrated that they are not fit to take care of themselves and take care of their assets. She has been under a guardianship under the guardianship of her father, basically, of her abusive father. It's disturbing to even say, you know, by being in this conservatorship, she's being told that she is incompetent, that she's not able to meet her daily needs, that she's not even able to, like it says in the California state law about like not even able to be able to feed yourself, uh, to be able to work and uh, to be able to take care of your basic needs. However, all of this, all the while, she is going on four world tours, releasing four studio albums with many of them going to number one, basically kept a rigorous schedule and has been providing income for so many people, including herself. But yet she's told that she's incompetent. Yet she's told that she needs to be under conservatorship, that she can't make decisions for herself, even though she is working at the highest level for a pop star. That's probably the most obvious sign of gaslighting that comes to mind for me is just, you know, she's literally through this conservatorship and through this situation, she's being told that she is crazy, that she can never trust her thoughts, that she can never trust her feelings, even though she is making millions of dollars and employing hundreds of people. So true. And honestly, at this point, Britain's raked in over $2 billion in revenue. Mm -hmm. So she's really literally making billions of dollars for people. Yeah, I think gaslighting has been happening to Britney throughout her career prior to the conservatorship and the most obvious example being just the conservatorship itself. Moving on to a related sign of narcissistic abuse, you know, we all talk about denial. We talk about uh, people will deny things. You don't have to be a narcissist to um, have adopted the style of denial, (laughs) basically. When we're talking about narcissistic abuse, denial basically refers to somebody denying specific events that have happened. It's a little bit more general, I suppose, than just gaslighting, trying to make you uh, question your sanity. Obviously, we do not know the entire story. Hopefully, she will do a tell-all, sit-down interview someday and you know, get her justice and have her voice heard even more. But at this time, we mostly just know Britney's story through her explosive testimony on June 23rd, and then basically subsequent um, Instagram posts. And actually, there was a subsequent court date as well, where we didn't actually get to hear the audio. And and, yeah, we didn't 
wasn't broadcast to the world like the first hearing, but we did get to see a transcript of that. So we kind of know Brittany's opinion. She made claims about being forced to work and made claims about, um, you know, working when she had a fever and, and being made to work when she was sick. And she mm. made claims about, um, you know, lots of different things, lots of really disturbing things in this original court hearing. And basically, a lot of these things were denied by her father and her father's lawyers. She's misremembering, is what they said. So it's kind of a bit of the gaslighting and denial happening because they're relying on this idea that she's crazy, that she's not able to take care of herself, that she can't trust her thoughts, as well as um, just denying these very specific allegations that she made. And so what do you think about denial and how it applies to Britney's story? Yeah, you're definitely right. You know, from the very beginning of the conservatorship, and as we now know, because of the documentaries, the many documentaries that have come out, um, Brittany's been trying to get out of this since day one. And every step of the way, everyone around her is literally denying her that opportunity. And even to add to that, um, going back to her first documentary, Britney for the Record, back 2009, I think, 2008, 2009, um, there was a scene in that documentary where she's stating that, you know, she's angry. The documentary does a very good job at editing out why she's angry, you know, like, and all these things. Although they never explicitly say the conservatorship, but Brittany details, you know, the doctors and the lawyers and everyone constantly analyzing her. Looking back now, that we know, like, that whole documentary was really about the conservatorship. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a scene where, you know, she's like, I'm angry. Some, you know, people aren't really listening to me. And she's trying to tell her team, or she was like, I tell people how I feel, but they're not really listening to me. They're just hearing mm-hmm. what they want to hear and telling me what, you know, something like that. And then the scene flips where um, her team is telling her, oh, you're fine. There's, you're fine. You're perfectly fine. And she's like, no, like I'm angry. And she's like smiling because it's like such a ridiculous, like, you know, she's aware that what's going on is ridiculous. And she's like, I'm so angry right now. Like, you know, she says something like certain things that you think I can get, I can't. And her team, they're all just laughing at her. They're all just laughing. And they're all like, no, like they're basically literally in present time denying her reality. Mm -hmm. And that example actually speaks to our third sign of narcissistic abuse, which is known as trivializing. So trivializing refers to when a narcissist or, you know, somebody else even may belittle or demean your emotions. And so they might say that you're overreacting or that you're being too sensitive um, when you tell them about your feelings. So yes, so things are being denied, but um, I would say the example that you just spoke about really speaks to trivializing. And I also know exactly what you mean in these clips. I've seen these clips. We've seen the clips together multiple times. Basically, she's saying in this interview that she, you know, is in a situation that she doesn't like, that she, you know, tells people how she's feeling and it, how she's, yeah, how she's feeling. And that basically it seems that people look like they're listening, but they're not hearing her. There was a specific shot within Britney for the record where she's kind of sitting down with 
a lot of the people who work for her and she's telling them that she's angry about something and they're basically saying oh Brittany you know you're so silly and and then she's kind of smiling she's like I'm not smiling because I'm happy I'm smiling because y'all think it's funny you can actually see it happening in real time in the Brittany for the record I was actually so surprised when that documentary did come out because it came out two years after her conservatorship started and basically gave us this insight that I know you and I specifically and lots of other people out there were really kind of were looking for information and wanted to know how she's doing. And we knew this conservatorship was questionable from the outset. And so the Britney for the Record documentary was a very good little window into what was going on. And of course, now that we know much, much more about what's been going on, it corroborates a lot of what Brittany ended up saying in her in her testimony and since she's been outspoken on Instagram as well. That's exactly true. Um, that's so true. Um, and it's so interesting now that that documentary, Brittany for the Record, is gone. That you is find interesting. It anywhere now. Find it. The only thing you find now on the internet are um, bootleg clips and doctored, rough-looking clips because that's the only way that you can get her that message out from back then because her team pulled it and now files copyright claims. That's also part of the reason why both New York Times documentaries and I think most of the recent documentaries, they're not even allowed to reference Britney for the record or they'll get uh, their, her team will come after them. Wow. Exactly. Obviously, this documentary was very uh, worked against uh, the conservatorship team (laughs) more than they even knew. In terms of like narcissistic abuse and specifically Jamie Spears and that team thinking that they could put this out and that this was going to go on and go on and no one was ever going to figure it out. And it kind of goes to show um, or you let me know if you think, you know, that his narcissism oh, she can say what she wants. Like, this is never going to get out. Exactly. So the, the next pattern that we're going to be discussing, when a narcissist tries to manipulate your feelings, so they basically try to change your perception. So in the case of Britney, Jamie Spears, you know, would be quite challenged by a lot of her boyfriends and would be challenged by uh, people who were getting close to Britney and would find ways to basically, you know, cut those people out of Britney's life and would find ways to manipulate Britney's feelings about these people. The best example that I can think of is her ex-boyfriend, David Lucado, where at some point, David Lucado kind of uh, started to become a threat in Jamie's eyes. Jamie then basically showed Brittany footage. I don't know where he got this footage, but somehow he had footage of David cheating on Brittany with another girl. And I don't even know if it was current footage of him, you know, being with someone while he was with Brittany or if it was old footage or whatever. But we basically know that Jamie had shown Brittany a video of her boyfriend being with another woman. And that caused Brittany to break up with this boyfriend. This is kind of a way that um, we are seeing her father manipulating her feelings. So true. And just like you said, you know, where did Jamie even get this footage? And recently we know that in the Controlling Britney Spears documentary that he's monitoring her every move and recording everything that she was saying and everywhere she was going. So I'm wondering if she was dating David back in 2014, I think around that Mm -hmm. era, Mm -hmm. um, 2013. So this has really been going on for a really long time. And these documentaries have also highlighted that 
Britain's father is very much interested in her sex life and in her love、mm. life and who she talks to and the men that she dates and that he has to approve the men that she dates. So you're definitely right with the narcissistic and、um, manipulating feelings. So you know he has been able to manipulate even men in her life. And、mm-hmm. control those aspects too. Absolutely, you know. I think for those of us who are not the most famous celebrity on the planet, or for those of us who aren't in conservatorships with our evil fathers, <laughs> this might look a little bit different. It might look like someone being threatened by a relationship. So, for you and I, for instance, we've been friends for twenty-four years, and I know we've both had. Different men that we've dated along the way, and I specific—I remember specific people being very threatened by just the fact that I had such a close friend, a close gay friend, and I think we've kind of had people try to, you know, plant little seeds in my ear about you, basically,、uh, you know, trying to cause me to feel a certain way about you and to basically change the way that we spend time together, or maybe sometimes the goal was to cut you out of my, you know, cut you out of my life. Like that's actually happened、um, with some of. You know the people that that I've dated <laughs> over the years, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it's most it's mostly been all of your boyfriends, <laughs> <laughs> except for except for maybe one, except for maybe one. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> For those of us who aren't in a conservatorship, which I imagine would be anyone listening to this podcast, it, it just kind of looks like people being threatened.、It、looks like people trying to influence how you feel about someone. In Brittany's case, her father influencing how she feels about her boyfriends, and God knows what else. Yeah, actually, I want to come to the controlling Britney Spears documentary where Felicia was saying that. Jamie pulled her into an office, and her team was there. And they said, "Brittany doesn't like you anymore. She doesn't want you around. She doesn't、oh. like you. She thinks you're too much." And pitting them against each other, and then who knows what he was saying to Brittany about、mm. Felicia? I mean, yeah. So I think that would be an example. Yes, it would be. I guess in this case, it was Felicia's feelings that were being manipulated. Obviously, for the purpose of keeping Brittany confined in this situation, but yeah, that's a really good example.、Um, basically, telling Felicia lies about Brittany and Brittany not wanting to see her. I guess she was kind of instructed to just kind of stay out of the way and was definitely not meant to share a space with Brittany or to、uh, see Brittany. Basically, but one day, you know, of course,、uh, they couldn't control everything that happened, and I guess、um, they ended up in, in a hallway at the same time together. And Brittany ends up just kind of running down the hallway and like just leaping and giving her the biggest hug and like just was so excited to see her and asked her where the hell she's been, why haven't I seen you? And so at that point, Felicia knew that she was lied to.、Mm, and exactly, Felicia was being gaslit and manipulated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that really goes to show the length that Jamie will go to to manipulate and lie to everyone around Brittany, including her,、mm-hmm. to her trust. Moving on, another sign of narcissistic abuse is incongruent actions when words don't match actions. Or as my sister Kelly would say, when the audio doesn't match the video, and so I would actually say 
that this particular sign really relates to the core of manipulation. Like, what does it mean to be manipulative? It means that your words don't match your actions, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And sometimes people can be manipulative. Obviously, we don't have to be a full-blown malignant narcissist like Jamie Spears uh, to have incongruent actions. Sometimes people um, have learned to lie to themselves and sometimes they'll tell themselves something about what they're going to do and then they won't follow through with it. And so in a sense, um, having incongruent actions. In the case of Jamie Spears, incongruent actions are very premeditated. And basically, I think the most relevant example in the case of Britney is that Britney was told from the outset of this conservatorship that it was temporary. And obviously, mm -hmm. it was later made permanent. She was told once she completed, you know, she went on world tour. And this is the thing about conservatorships is if someone's in a conservatorship, they're not able to work. They're not able to provide money and they're not able to go on world tours and have four best-selling albums and, and all of that. So Britney was basically told that once she completed the circus tour, so this tour that she had gone on immediately into her conservatorship, which is very odd in a conservatorship to immediately go to work, to immediately go um, and be a functioning individual. Um, and she was told that once she completes the circus tour, which I think was the highest grossing tour of any female pop star that year, that they would end the conservatorship. And what mm. happened after that is it was actually made permanent. So words not matching actions. And I think that's the example that comes to mind for me. What are your thoughts mm. on this incongruent actions? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the biggest example. And he did it again and again on her next tour, the Patel tour. He said this would be the last one. And then the Vegas residency came. And then that lasted four years. And then she wanted to take a break. And they said, sure. And oh, but... But there's, you know, an opportunity we could do another one in domination. Oh, yes. She also did uh, Vegas Residency. And I think it was the highest grossing, like the most popular, the most successful Vegas Residency in the history of residencies, like or, may, or maybe for women or something like that, or, <laughs> or maybe ever. I don't know. But it was very successful is the point. Those true Britney fans out there will know that she was preparing to do a second Vegas Residency called Domination. So her first one was called piece of me. And her second one that she was uh, preparing for was called Domination. And basically, um, she did not actually want to do a second residency. I guess during kind of halfway throughout preparing for that, through the rehearsals and whatever, uh, at some point she was told that if she wanted, if she chose not to do the residency, if she chose to back out, that it would be okay and she'd be perfectly fine to do that. But what had actually happened was, uh, you know, her team told her doctor that she was not cooperating in rehearsal, which isn't even a valid reason for anything. But, uh, and I guess they used that in order to have her doctor change her medication and put her on lithium. This is something she spoke about specifically in her testimony on the 23rd of June. So I guess the incongruence here is they say, it's okay, you can choose not to do this if you don't want to do it. And then she chose not to do it. And then she was punished for it by being put on lithium and being forced into a mental health facility against her will. You know, talk about, there's more, there's a couple of problems with that other than incongruent actions, but certainly mm -hmm. uh, the essence of this very much relates to incongruent actions.
That's so true. And I remember Brittany saying as well in that testimony that in that specific rehearsal, you know, there was a specific dance move she didn't want to do and didn't make her comfortable. And, you know, what's the big deal? It's just a dance move. And her team was called down to the rehearsal studio. And apparently her dancers and her team disappeared into a little studio room and left her on the dance floor. And that part, maybe this isn't exactly the right example but um i guess this kind of goes with manipulation blind denial it, the abuse is so rampant um that it's you know all right there um in that moment but where they told her therapist that i believe she said passed away you know that she wasn't taking her medication and that she was being difficult and that oh she's gonna have another meltdown and because she didn't want to do a dance move mm. and that they that that was also in addition to getting her into the mental health facility so mm. beyond you know literally in that one moment the abuse is they're lying they're gaslighting they're denying her reality and then they're also manipulating also manipulating her feelings yeah, all, 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 of it. <laughs> all of it. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. terrible. I know, I know. That's the thing. This is such an extreme situation. Narcissism is very prominent in this world. I think, you know, just the kind of capitalist society that we have fosters narcissism. And really, I think most people have had interactions with narcissistic people and have been impacted by narcissism. But this is on a completely different level, you know, just because most of the time a narcissist doesn't have the legal power or, you know, they're not your guardian until you're 39 years old. So these specific signs of narcissistic abuse, you know, these are the classic signs of abuse that you would see in kind of any narcissistic relationship, but they're all taken to the extreme. And just like you pointed out, kind of happening simultaneously all at the same time. Certainly, we do know enough and we have seen enough. You and I have seen enough being people who've been very invested in this through the entire time that it's been in place. And so, you know, we've seen enough to be confident in these signs of narcissistic abuse. And I can only imagine how much worse it really was for her. We will, well, I mean, I was going to say we will never know, but we might find out tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yeah, we might find out when she does her sit-down interview, what she's mentioned that she wants to do. <laughs> yes, with Oprah. Let's get, let's get Oprah. <laughs> apparently, she, apparently, I don't even know. Apparently, she doesn't want to do it with Oprah. Oh, okay. <laughs> or I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just let's not mention it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There was something I remember seeing about Oprah and her not wanting to do it with Oprah, but she did say, like, again, we want to, we do want to be as factual as possible here. Of course, we're making, you know, giving our opinions and things like that too. But uh, she did say in her testimony that she wants to have a, she wants to be able to tell the world about her story. She did say that specifically to the judge. She did. And oh, I'm so excited for that day. Yeah, I know. I know. Me too. Me too. These last couple signs of narcissistic abuse, I kind of view them as maybe the most severe, especially in the case of Brittany. But the next one is um, emotional blackmail. Brittany had mentioned in her testimony that 
basically her children were used as a way to manipulate her and that she basically her time with her children was threatened if she did something wrong, essentially, um, or if she did something that the conservatorship didn't like or that her father didn't like. And it's not just Britney that speaks to this, but it's also in these documentaries, uh, especially in Controlling Britney Spears, so the most recent New York Times documentary where um, one of the people being interviewed, I think one of the costume designers who worked very closely with Britney, talked about an instance where, you know, she got in a fight with her father about something because he didn't want her to have a phone because he is incredibly controlling. Basically, you know, she fights back. Her father threatens to take her kids away. And so this is not only something that Britney's spoken to specifically, but also something that's been corroborated from various different sources at, the, at this point. Yeah, that's disgusting. Truly, can't even imagine. Britney specifically, yes, she has this image of being, oh, this pop star, obviously just taught us all how to be fearless and, you know, just owns her body <laughs> and all of that. But really, who Britney the person is, she is a mother. She like cares more about having a family than she does about having this life as a pop star. And she always has. And obviously her father and the conservatorship team were aware of this and they used it against her. And they used it against her. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if they've ever threatened with throwing her into a mental health facility before. Mm. Or, or I think it always came back to her, her boy. Well, I think that was, the, it's just the one that we know about at this point. And I guess it yeah. was probably the most effective in keeping her, I guess, in controlling her. It was the most effective because you're so right. Like she's been saying she wants to retire for a really long time. So it, her career at this point wasn't the number one thing. And Jamie knew that was the way that he could ultimately control her um, was through her kids. Just because Brittany doesn't care about money or mm. fame or anything like that to the level that her father does her yeah. or her family as well. Like her fam the rest of her family is not innocent in all this. They aren't truly not. We're focusing more on her father just because we know more information about her father, just given everything that has come to light recently. And But yeah, certainly it does seem that her family, entire family, I guess, all had different roles in extorting Brittany. Yeah. I should also mention that as a general definition, you know, obviously, again, like this is an exceptional situation that Brittany has been in. Generally, emotional blackmail consists of making angry threats or um, attempts to punish behavior. That's all, that's all really emotional blackmail means. And so in this case, they had this power of being Britney's guardian and therefore almost being able to control, well, not almost, absolutely being able to control her access to her kids. So that was kind of the most effective way to bl blackmail her and to basically punish her. Exactly. She also mentioned too, anytime that she said no, and she mentioned this in the testimony, anytime that she said no, that um, people punished her behavior. And I, th I think she mentioned about having to, um, you know, go to this facility, this particular treatment facility where she was made to do rigorous programming, you know, from I don't know how many hours a day she mentioned, but it sounded like 10 hours a day or like yeah. something obscene. Um, whereas even the people around her in this home did not have to do that. You know, like even mm -hmm. the people around her didn't have to do the same things that she had to do as a basically form of punishment for maybe 
like you said, um, refusing a dance move or maybe just from backing out of domination altogether, she was punished for that. Yes. I wonder, do you remember the example in the Controlling Britney documentary where um, one of her stylists was talking about like she wanted just a pair of shoes and like sketchers that are literally like 20 bucks or something like that. And mm-hmm. her team would tell her, why do you need that? Like, you don't need that. You don't need to spend your money on something like that. Mm. Um, I don't know if that was necessarily blackmail or punishment, but. Well, really just um, control, you know, I think, yeah, I think it kind of is. It's kind of like when she behaves, she can probably, you know, they would let her have certain things. And when she doesn't behave or do what they want, then she can't have those certain things that she has more, that she has more than earned for herself. Moving on to the next sign of narcissistic abuse, basically smearing. Smearing was something that has been used against Britney prior to the conservatorship. You know, if you think about a smear campaign, you know, a smear campaign is kind of what you often hear um, when talking about narcissistic abuse, which basically refers to how a narcissist will attempt to sabotage your reputation by making you look bad to other people. And so in the case of Brittany, this was done by her team leaking information or maybe even paying off uh, certain news outlets, um, such as TMZ, <laughs> who basically put forward stories about Brittany. And it seems actually that the conservatorship team and basically uh, Brittany's father would had a relationship had a relationship with TMZ and that they would you know feed them information about Britney information that was not true or um, I mean pretty much never true the fact yeah. is Britney is a normal person and she's probably more stable than her father and they ended up giving her them information about Britney's mental health status that that no one is, should be privy to they have uh, you know they ended up leaking information about um, the court document which I guess Jamie tried to res- respond when Jamie responded to the original kind of request for him to withdraw from the conservatorship he ended up like leaking information about his response about these documents that were going to be filed the next day and and then when you actually read through the documents, it didn't quite line up with what he was saying. A smear campaign, basically. I think the smear campaign is just mostly the team being able to, in this case, leak information to the media yeah. about her. And we, kind of going back to, we don't even know how deep it really goes. We don't even know what her father has been able to do or her family as well, but going back from the beginning of the conservatorship, all the stories that were coming out, and I guess with the mainstream media, with the smear campaign, you know, obviously Britney's been smeared over the media way before the conservatorship, and then it really came, you know, to a head in 2007. Um, So I guess it just makes me wonder, like, we don't know what her father was able to do even for the conservatorship, because we know that he was working with others, someone called like Lou M. Taylor or someone like that, you know, who knows how long that he was working with her in order to coerce her into this conservatorship. Mm. What was he able to tell TMZ or tell other media outlets about Britney 
when did he begin to do this to her? You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. um, who was involved in the smearing? Brittany's really been surrounded by a lot of pariahs and narcissists, probably, or sorry, I shouldn't say narcissists. We're, we don't know. We predators. Uh, <laughs> predators, yes. You know, for a really long time. Yeah, the most obvious is, you know, TMZ and Jamie working together. Because every article that TMZ has ever put out, you know, even during the more recent times where the media has been more on Britney's side over the last several years, or I shouldn't say several, maybe like 2018, maybe, um, and especially since 2019, it's so interesting that TMZ's articles are always against Britney. Always. They're always questioning her mental health. They're always putting the angle of, well, can she really take care of herself? Where other media outlets are like, she's 39 years old. She's gone on multiple worldwide tours. Yeah, I guess proof the thought. Yeah, exactly. Even the fact that every single article that we have seen from this specific news outlet has questioned her mental health and always just painting her in this light of being incompetent or being crazy and as, mm -hmm. if, as if struggling with mental health warrants anything that's happened to her. But So again, obviously, smear campaigns don't usually take the form, for most of us who are dealing with narcissistic relationships, smear campaigns don't usually take the form of um, people going to the news about us. It usually takes the form of people talking to your friends about you. Someone will, yeah, just kind of make up some lies about you to the different people in your life and maybe even to your social network at large might be the way that it usually would manifest. We obviously know with the, again, it, all of these abuse tactics are used all at once because this is so extreme. At the same time where, you know, again, think of that example where Felicia was brought into that room and they're like, well, Brittany doesn't like you. They're smearing Brittany to Felicia even in that example. Does that make sense? To say she's mad at you, I suppose, is I guess just more with the intention of making Felicia believe that she's mad at her and manipulating her perceptions. A lot of these have overlap. Absolutely. Any narcissistic relationship, you will see some of these signs for sure. But in the case of Brittany, we're basically seeing all of the classic signs and we're seeing them to a very extreme level. A very extreme level. The last two signs of narcissistic abuse that we will be speaking about are violence and stalking. Two things that, that have actually applied to the case of Brittany. In terms of violence, we do know that Jamie Spears was known to be violent, that he struggled with alcoholism and he was a very angry drunk and basically was very unstable. We know this through multiple sources. One of those sources is Lynn Spears, Brittany's mother, when she released a memoir several years back now. Um, she talked about Jamie Spears and basically how he was um, violent and abusive and scary. And yeah. then this violent, abusive, scary man who struggles, you know, who was actually seen, you know, there were pictures actually of, you know, when Brittany was at her lowest low prior to the conservatorship and, you know, people were just invading her privacy all the time. Um, there was a picture of Brittany um, in a car with Jamie where, uh, it looked like he was doing drugs with her. Maybe they were doing cocaine or something like that. And then this man who literally is participating <laughs> in these destructive behaviors with her and has a history of 
you know, being abusive and being violent um, and who basically she's never had a really good relationship. He has become, you know, her guardian. And we also know that he had a, Jamie Spears has had a physical altercation with one of her sons where he was, something happened where he was enraged and chased him into a room. He, the boy locked himself in a closet and Jamie bashed the door down mm. and shook him violently, which now he has a restraining order against, um, which yes. includes... Uh, both boys and Kevin Federline, all three have a restraining order against him, which is still in place. So we can only imagine if he's willing to do that to his grandson, what has he been capable of in his entire, you know, Britney's entire life? Exactly. There's even recent evidence um, of him being violent and shaking out one of her sons. I would like to also say that. Um, Violence is not always present when thinking about narcissistic abuse. Like you can have narcissistic abuse without violence. Not every narcissist is necessarily violent. But when you look at, you know, um, kind of people who have been incarcerated or when you look at violent people, they do tend to have narcissistic traits. And um, unfortunately for Brittany, you know, that has been a part of, of her story and in, in her narcissistic father basically and then like i mentioned um the last sign that we will talk about is known as hoovering or stalking basically you know we all know what stalking means but um you know hoovering is a term that is used in narcissistic relationships basically when somebody has ended a relationship when we've ended a relationship a toxic relationship basically that person kind of stalks you that per that person might try to get in contact with you again they might stalk you on social media they might drive by your house they might uh start they might take up a running uh route in your area <laughs> like things like that is uh, are known to happen and so for the case of Brittany, we basically found out in that last documentary the controlling britney spears documentary that her father had been listening to her private conversations and that she had been recorded in her, that everything that she did was recorded. They, they talked about how um, she had an iPhone that they were able to mirror so that they could see everything that she was doing on her iPhone and basically having recording devices so they could hear all of her private conversations. Usually in, in these relationships, People might stalk or hoover kind of with the attempt of getting the person back or it's, it's kind of what hoovering refers to. It's kind of af almost like after the relationship has ended or after someone's been discarded, essentially. Obviously, with Brittany, uh, she has been in this thing for 13, 14 years and um, there was stalking behavior and the stalking behavior was used to basically control her. Yeah, and it's so extreme. It's like she doesn't even have the ability to get out like it's mm -hmm. hoovering to the max and even uh well i guess to kind of go into a little bit more detail we know that in the early onset of the conservatorship Brittany was uh attempting to get her own lawyer and attempting to you know break free and somehow jamie knew this he already knew that Brittany was trying to do this so he must have been monitoring her from the get-go. 
implemented um, these extreme measures since the very beginning, because Brittany, as we find out in control of Britney Spears documentary, um, by the time Britney's lawyer arrived to the courtroom, everyone else was already there and had already made their decision. Mm-hmm. And it was questionable as to how did the court and how did those lawyers already know what Brittany was trying to do? Exactly. In this case, very extreme case of um, being stalked and hoovered, but, um, but nonetheless exemplifies this classic sign of narcissistic abuse. And so that basically concludes the patterns, the common patterns that we will be discussing today. How do you feel at the end of all of that? How do you feel about just examining these specific ways that Brittany has endured abuse? Um, It's slightly triggering. (laughs) It just really highlights why tomorrow is so important. Mm -hmm. And it really highlights state of the way women are treated, especially women like Brittany, who, oh, you know, again, own, who portray owning their body and having power. People are tra- always trying to tear down powerful women. Brittany is no exception. It didn't matter how sweet and real and respectful she was. And people just wanted to, people just wanted a piece of her. And yeah, I, I was kind of laying this all out. And you know, disclaimer, I am not a professional podcaster. This is legit my very first podcast. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'm a little rough um, and a little anxious. But <laughs> after we just kind of laid it all out. And, and again, like we don't even know, like we don't even know the full extent. It's like there's so much is out now. But now that we've talked it all out, Brittany has literally been abused every single day for 13 years. Mm, exactly. And the fact that she's still strong, kicking and screaming, wanting to get out of this and standing up for herself. And even in that day of the testimony, literally surrounded by her abusers, the court, the lawyers, her family, um, for her to be able to say all of this after 13 years just really shows how powerful and strong she really is. Mm-hmm. It was such a sobering moment to just hear her finally speak out about what's been going on and that she wants her life back and that you know she is traumatized, she said, by what's happened to her. Not that she had anything wrong with her in the first place, but that she's traumatized from all the abuse that she's endured. And she herself labeled it as conservatorship abuse. She did. She herself said, I'm being abused. That, mm-hmm. oh, oh my gosh, just so powerful. I'm getting emotional right now thinking about it. Honestly, it gives me... No, tomorrow is literally three, four, five hours away. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be glued to... Updates on Brittany. <laughs> if I could yeah. fly to Los Angeles tomorrow, I would. I know. Oh my God. I know. We have been questioning this thing, you know, since its inception. I remember two years into the conservatorship where we were talking about, hmm, like, is this thing ever going to end? Did you realistically think this thing will end? And I remember you saying something like, I don't know if it will. And even us to, 
just a couple of years ago, I think like in 2018, I remember us being saying things like maybe she wants to be in a conservatorship. Like we, mm-hmm. there was so much control that not, nobody knew. So at this point, it's like, okay, well, it's been, I mean, in 2018, it was 10 years. So mm-hmm. like, you know, does she want to be in this? Like, is this okay? Like, is she fine with this? And I remember hearing, um, you know, media outlets or, you know, sources saying, oh, well, this is voluntary. Brittany wants to be in the conservatorship. Like, mm. that's literally her testimony just destroyed everything. Everything. You're going to hear it from me directly. You heard it from her directly. The other kind of feeling that I'm having at the end of this is, hmm, I have always been so just put off when people would criticize Britney and make comments about the way that she talks or make comments about the way that she looks or the way that she acts. Basically, because we have been so attuned to what's happening and we've basically known this is happening the whole time, that like I'm, I was aware that hmm, the reason that she might seem a little bit socially awkward or the reason that she might you know, talk like a little girl sometimes and make herself small sometimes and not use her voice is because of, you know, it's really a result of all of the abuse that she has endured. And so I've always been so rubbed the wrong way when when people couldn't see that and were like criticizing her, like the person and like somehow like looking at these kind of ways that she's been impacted, but almost attributing it to just her as if there's something wrong with her. And I've always just been so put off by that. Like I will almost get like offended (laughs) when people like come for Brittany. Um, But I've always recognized that. Yeah. The reason that she like is acting the way that she's acting is because of what she's been experiencing. And I've always been just so disturbed by it, but I guess didn't, we never had confirmation. We didn't have full confirmation of what was happening just until this year. I'm just so glad that she has had the strength to be able to stand up for herself and that she's been able to get to this point where tomorrow it seems that she will literally be free from this conservatorship. One more day. One more day. And I'm hoping that the the investigation continues because we need to find out where did her money go? Mm. For this episode, we're going to continue on with our conversation about... (laughs) about coping with narcissism. So like I mentioned, Mm. on this podcast, we like to also give practical advice. This has been a heavy topic. It's been an important topic. It's, you know, something that we are both very, very passionate about um, and something that we've both been very moved by. But, um, you know, we want to give a little bit of practical advice about how to cope with narcissistic abuse as well. And um, of course, we will talk about kind of some things that Brittany has done, um, but we might talk a little bit more generally about just how to cope with any narcissistic relationships. Okay. Yeah. And so firstly, what do you think that Brittany has done right? And how do you think that she has helped herself to get out of this situation? Um, well, to be frank, she, at some point, I guess she had to accept what was going on. I think that, I mean, acceptance is hard in a situation like that, but after obviously being hounded, stalked by media paparazzi and her own family and monitored, we know that in 2014, she tried to get out of this again and that her court-appointed lawyer just 
didn't happen to tell her that she could petition to end the conservatorship. At some point, she kind of just came to accept and to try to cope with what was going on around mm. her. So I think there needs to be a level of acceptance. If if you're not able to, you know, in Britain's case, and I don't know, this maybe this is controversial, but um, in Britain's case, like at what point, like at what point do you accept what's happening to you? Yeah, exactly. And I remember seeing back in this first documentary in um, Britney for the record that she said like, oh, she was crying and saying that she's sad and she thinks this, she's going to be in this situation for a long time. So that was kind of the first time that I've ever started to pick up on any kind of acceptance that Brittany had of the situation. She just knew, she kind of knew what was going on and knew that she couldn't necessarily do a lot to change the situation. And so she, she was able to accept her situation, essentially. Whether or not you can change it, obviously she has realized that she's Britney fucking Spears and she stepped into her power. Um, but you know, whether or not you can change something or you have the power to change something, it's always a good first step to accept what is going on and to acknowledge the problem for what it is. After all, the first step for solving any problem is to, you know, define the problem, to know what the problem is. In Brittany's case, if she was to believe everything that's been fed to her, she would believe that she's the problem, that she's unstable, that she needs this, that she's crazy, that all these terrible things that um, have been perpetuated about her. She was able to accept, no, I am in an abusive situation. These people are narcissistic. My father does not have my best interests at I mean, I don't know if she, she did not use the word narcissist, but she had to accept that her father is not working in her best interest. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly it. As you said, you have to kind of accept the situation you're in before you can work through what's going on. And mm. obviously, we're not stuck in a conservatorship. If you can't accept it, then fight like hell to make mm. a change. Um, but obviously, Brittany realized she was up against the entire judicial system mm. um, and it wasn't going to be an easy one day thing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Anybody, like any healthy person, any normal person, anybody listening to this has probably encountered highly narcissistic individuals, the likes of yeah, at least people who have some, some kind of commonalities with Jamie Spears. Of course, um, maybe not to this extreme, but we've, we've all kind of encountered our own narcissists. There are certain people who are almost like an easier target for predatory people or for narcissistic people. A part of being an easy target for people like this would be being like a people pleaser or being um, somebody who has a bit of a lower self-esteem and, you know, somebody who, you know, would believe what people will tell them at face value and uh, basically try to please people above all else and care above all else about how people are perceiving you and how people feel about you. And so I think one way to kind of cope with this and almost even prevent this from happening is to work is to focus on your self-esteem and to know your self-worth and to i guess not put the opinions of others above your opinion of yourself and Brittany has always done a really good job at i think Brittany has always known who she is mm -hmm. um, and the conservatorship definitely was you know beating her down over the years but 
to what you said earlier, she definitely stepped into her power and realized, oh yeah, I am Britney Buckley Spears and mm. I'm not just good, I'm great. I can do this. Exactly. We can't have a conversation about toxic relationships or narcissistic relationships without talking about boundaries. If you're finding yourself in a narcissistic relationship, it is very important. It is of the utmost importance to identify and enforce your boundaries. And of course, that can just be a boundary of literally never talking to that person ever again. <laughs> but not all of us have that luxury of cutting people out of our lives like that. Um, sometimes people are, you know, the, the people we're dealing with are family members or sometimes they are coworkers and we have to get along with them. And so um, sometimes we do have to actually have boundaries uh, within a relationship with people like this. In the case of Brittany, obviously, she really didn't have a lot of um, rights, a lot of human rights in this particular situation, but she did identify um, some boundaries that she had. Um, she did identify that, hmm, I'm not going to perform so long as my father's in charge of my career. She specifically wrote that on Instagram at one point. She realized at some point that I'm not going to perform. <laughs> and to me, that's a, that's a boundary. It's like, I'm the, the one, you know, physically doing this and I refuse to do this. <laughs> if mm -hmm. this person continues to rule my life and be in charge of my career. That's exactly it. She understood that money talks and that everyone around her just wanted money. So mm. she's thinking, oh, well, I'm just not going to perform anymore. And that really, like, that was it. Like, that was the thing. Mm -hmm. You know, in Britney's case, it would be, like, that's literally, like, the boundary. Um, but in any, like, for everything else, she has no boundaries. Like, she's not allowed to set boundaries. Even no. she's being monitored and stalked by her own family and recorded. Like she literally has no privacy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's absolutely amazing that she was able to to say that I don't want to continue my career if my father is at the helm. And even in the situation where, yeah, she was quite literally stripped of her ability to have boundaries, but she also had this essence of just knowing that was wrong and knowing that actually metaphysically she she can have boundaries and mm -hmm. in the court hearing you know in the footage that we all heard that's still on the internet basically you hear her say i'm allowed to say no i'm allowed to say no to a dance move like i know mm -hmm. like legally i'm not allowed to do it like legally i have no rights but i'm fucking allowed to say no you know mm -hmm. So she exemplified this, this particular piece of advice. The way I think that boundaries would look maybe in a less extreme situation, maybe with um, the everyday kind of uh, narcissist, we might, um, for instance, you know, if someone is being emotionally reactive, if someone is yelling, if someone is calling us names, if someone is mistreating us in some way, we can assert our boundaries by telling them, if you continue to yell at me, if you continue to call me names, if you continue to disrespect me, if you continue to do whatever it is that I don't like, I will not engage with you. I will leave. I won't have this conversation with you. You know, that's how it might, that's how it might look for those of us who aren't in conservatorships. Right. And I think a final kind of uh, piece of practical advice 
revolves around anticipating angry reactions. Brittany has quietly for years, you know, been kind of planning how to get out of this conservatorship. And she has been very silent in her approach and very calculated in her approach and basically just kind of anticipating angry reactions that people will give you or you know that people aren't going to listen to you and you can kind of plan ahead. But in this case of Brittany, I think um, I just wanted to touch on the point that we know that highly narcissistic people who don't care about my humanity basically don't like it, don't like when you set boundaries. <laughs> and, so, and so you can anticipate yeah. an angry reaction in that way. Yeah, she definitely thought ahead. So do you have anything to add to these standard pieces of advice? So just to recap, basically when dealing with narcissistic relationships, you know, it's helpful to accept the narcissism, to know what it is, to know that it's not amenable to change. You know, of course, anybody can change if they want to, but just the very nature of narcissism kind of means that, you know, these people kind of think they're better and they're above, they're above you and they kind of look at you as a means to an end. And there's no real motivation for these people to change. And personality patterns in general are very hard to change. And so um, accepting that is very important. And acceptance can kind of take the form of knowing that a person is who they are and cutting them out of your life or knowing that's who they are and just giving very little attention and time to them, knowing who they are and planning how to escape your conservatorship. <laughs> um, of course, owning your truth. You know, like you said, Brittany has always owned her truth from day one. For anybody in this situation, we need to own our truth and realize that our feelings and our opinions are valid. And of course, that also kind of goes into the self-esteem aspect. We need to basically work on our self-esteem and um, be able to self-validate and essentially to make ourselves less vulnerable to falling into these relationships. It's good to work on our self-esteem. And then, like I said, boundaries, 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 boundaries. I can't stress that enough. Um, and anticipating angry reactions. Do you have anything to add to that list or any comment or... So from personal experience, um, something that definitely, you know, as a young person and in the age of media, we definitely have the ability to do research and to, you know, find resources. Um, so that's definitely something that helped me was to reach out to somebody that I trusted. And, you know, that was you. Um, so, uh, so I'm really lucky and grateful that I was able to reach out to someone in those moments when I felt trapped in my own family mm -hmm. and trapped and surrounded by people that I felt like, again, an object mm -hmm. and that I felt like no one was ever just so much like Brittany, you know, I just felt like no one was ever listening to me mm -hmm. and my opinion never mattered. And that I'm just, you know, a tool for my family to make money for them. I was always told as a child, you need to be a doctor, you need to make money. Um, mm. So having that one person, and if you don't have that one person that you can trust and tell these things to, then go out to social media, make a statement. I think some people are, as we're getting older, um, or coming from, an older generation, I guess, because we're getting older. Mm. Um, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was standard that you don't talk about your problems. You don't talk, you don't tell people what's going on. That's wrong. We need to be able to tell people what's going on. If you're being abused, you need to be able to tell someone that you're being 
you. You need mm-hmm. to be able to find the strength. So, so I guess just to kind of add, um, if you don't have that one person, then maybe you've made an online friend that lives in Australia and you really trust them. Tell them maybe they can help you. Maybe they're able to find, uh, reach out to someone somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. And something else that I know was really helpful is, and it kind of, again, goes with self-esteem, but, and this word is charged, um, but to have faith, and you don't necessarily have to have faith in some God or faith in anything but your own ability to keep going, Mm -hmm. just knowing that you can just keep going. And again, kind of trying to figure out what your next move is, what decisions can I make with the resources that I have to move me closer to where I know I need to get out and to get freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, if you don't have one person that you can talk to, if you don't have the ability to reach out to somebody, if, you don't, if you're not on social media, then just believe that one day you're going to get out of it. Yes. Yes. Such, such a good piece of advice. To be honest, yeah, there are a lot of narcissistic people in the world. And just like we were mentioning, there's kind of obvious reasons for that. But there are also a lot of people in the world who are capable of love and empathy and people who will help you. There are people out there who will help. There are relationships out there who or the, you know, there are people out there who won't hurt you. It's a necessary mind frame to have in navigating these challenging relationships. Good people do exist. And people aren't inherently bad, but we're all some kind of fucked up. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. People aren't inherently bad. And you and I are certainly not saying, like, again, this is a trait that a lot of us have. And it's just really the very extreme end of the spectrum that we're really talking about here. Um, And when people are considered to be a clinical narcissist, you know, somebody who really isn't going to acknowledge your humanity. And um, obviously the case of Brittany is a very extreme example, but it's, um, it does a good job of putting each of these signs of narcissistic abuse into perspective, but also does a good job, like Brittany's story does a good job of putting how to effectively cope with the situation. It is a success story in the end. Like, you know, it's a story of perseverance and a story of how like true love and light can prevail. I agree. So did we just finish our podcast episode together? Our first ever podcast episode together? <laughs> Oh my God, did I just blink and this is almost over? Oh my God. Uh, oh my goodness. I'm so nerve wracking. My first <laughs> podcast ever. I hope people can hear the differences in the tones of our voice. I hope <laughs> people understand. Yeah. <laughs> people seem to think that we sound the same. And so hopefully people will be able to tell who is who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just talking to yourself in this, <laughs> this is my imaginary friend <laughs> Jose Luca knows this is my imaginary friend Lucas Ortiz <laughs> I go by many names yes, by many names <laughs> who's who who's who who's who
Who's who? Who's who? Oh my god, we're ridiculous. We are ridiculous. Uh, can I ask you something? Of course. Um, what does the C stand for in Sister C podcast? Well, obviously, it stands for Sister. Cut the fucking conservatorship out. Cut this nonsense cut out. It. Cut it out. <laughs> cut it out. Cut it out. <laughs> Sister, cut, cut a bitch. Cut the conservatorship. This cut conservatorship it. crap. Oh, man. I'm so nervous for tomorrow, but so excited. Uh, I'm so excited as well. And we are sending you, if you're ever listening to this, Brittany, or even if you're not, we are sending you love and light. And the future is yours. You mm. like Brittany, if you just as you said, Brittany, if you're hearing this, like the future is yours. It is mm. your life. You're about to embark on a new journey. If you never perform again, I don't care. Like I just want to know exactly. that you're okay. Exactly. We care about you. We see you, Brittany, the person. There are good people in the world. And I'm so sorry that you've had to be subjected to so much toxic behavior and so much mistreatment. So much. And, you know, there's definitely some justice that will never be reclaimed, but there is justice that is coming. Mm -hmm. Justice will be served. In the end, justice. I don't feel like it doesn't feel like maybe there could be enough justice for what's happened. Nothing's going to give back this time. Your story will go on to inspire so many people and change things for kind of change things on a systemic level. Like you're going to be an advocate. An inspiration, uh, like a spearheader. <laughs> yes, a spearhead. <laughs> Spearhead. You're going to spearhead some serious change in this world, girl. <laughs> and we love Starting you. with the state of California. I think that's a wrap. My goodness. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes. Um, it's been an honor. And I'm excited for us to collaborate again in the future and for me to get a bit more experience in the podcast world. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, it feels so natural to be doing this with you, even though, yes, it is your first time podcasting. And yes, you know, we've had our technical difficulties and things like that. But no, I honestly feel so good doing this with you. And it feels very right that we're talking about this at this time. And we've had the opportunity to do this. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and love you. And love you. Thank you. And love you. And like talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> talk to you tomorrow, I guess. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Sister C podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you found some of our ideas to be helpful. If you would like to chat with me or learn more about my counseling and coaching services, you can visit my website at spectrapsychology.com. Remember, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, the Sister C podcast has your back. See you in the next one.